Tassa Bhagavata Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavata Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavata Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa After the Buddha's awakening, he set out to teach the Dhamma. He set out to teach what he learned, to pass on what he learned. Uh, as he set out to teach, he came across uh, five monks. They were actually five monks that he had practiced with uh, before he uh, left his ascetic reg regimens to find his own way to true happiness which he found, and when he found it, he set out to teach. Uh, and the first beings he came across who he uh, decided to offer the teachings were with these five monks, and he gave his first Dharma talk. What we're doing tonight started then. He set the wheel of the Dharma in motion. His first talk was setting the wheel of the Dharma in motion. In this talk, he made two key points. The first point was uh, he spoke about the middle path that he found, which was the path of skillful pleasure, learning to cultivate these qualities of jhana through uh, breath meditation practice. He said, the middle way realized by the Tathagata, producing vision, producing knowledge, leads to calm, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to unbinding. The second teaching that he gave in that talk was uh, the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. Uh, he depicted the Four Noble Truths as duties, as actions that were asked to accomplish. First duty is to comprehend suffering, comprehend dukkha. In this translation, Tanisarupiko uses the word stress for dukkha, the first noble truth. This noble truth of stress is to be comprehended. The second noble truth is uh, to abandon the cause of stress, to abandon clinging, holding on. The noble truth of stress is to be abandoned. The third noble truth is to realize the cessation of suffering. The noble truth of cessation of stress is to be directly experienced. And the fourth noble truth is the path uh, that we follow, the noble eightfold path. This noble eightfold, and this path is to be followed, developed. This noble truth of the way of practice, the way of practice, the way of practice, leading to the cessation of stress is to be developed. So we we develop this practice that leads to the cessation of suffering. When the Buddha gave this talk, uh, one of the monks uh, achieved the first level of awakening, stream entry, Konadana. Uh, Konadana achieved the first level of stream entry and that teaching as it's been passed down in the Sutta depicts that. And then, uh, and then it tells of how, uh, as the Buddha finished his teaching, uh, 
the devas rejoiced. The devas rejoiced. This is what the Blessed One said. Gratified, the group of the five monks delighted at his words. Delighted at his words. And while this explanation was being given, the Dhamma talk, there arose to Venerable Konadana the dustless, stainless Dhamma eye. Whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation. The realization that we come to extreme entry. And when the Blessed One had set the wheel of Dhamma in motion, the earth devas cried out at Varanasi in the game refuge at Isipatana, the Blessed One has set in motion the unexcelled wheel of Dhamma that cannot be stopped by Brahman or contemplative, Deva, Mara, or God, or anyone in the cosmos. On hearing the earth devas cry, the devas of the four kings, heaven, took up the cry. The devas of the 33 took up the cry. The Yama devas took up the cry. The Tusita devas took up the cry. The Nimamarati devas took up the cry. The Paranamita Vasawati devas took up the cry. The devas of Brahma's retinue took up the cry. At Varanasi, in the game refuge at Isipatana, the Blessed One has set in motion the unexcelled wheel of the Dhamma that cannot be stopped by Brahman or contemplative Deva, Mara, or God, or anyone at all in the cosmos. So in that moment, that instant, the cry shot up to the Brahma worlds, and this 10,000-fold cosmos shivered and quivered and quaked, while a great measureless radiance appeared in the cosmos, surpassing the effulgence of the devas. Then the Buddha exclaimed, so you really know, Konadana? So you really know? And this is how Venerable Konadana acquired the name Anya Konadana, Konadana who knows. And I love this because it shows uh, the great enthusiasm for the Buddha's teachings. There was a great enthusiasm for the Buddha's teachings. And when the Buddha gave his teachings, there was a rejoicing. There was a rejoicing. There was great joy. Joy in the Dhamma. Joy in the Dhamma. Joy in the teaching that had been given, that was being now, now being offered, that there was this teaching that offered a way to true happiness. Joy in the Dhamma, the truth of goodness, the truth of true happiness. The joy that this person has come to teach this Dhamma, this Buddha has come to teach this Dhamma. There is this Dhamma, there is a greater happiness, a true happiness, and we can realize it, it's inside of us. This great enthusiasm and rejoicing. And then I also love you know, the Buddha's enthusiasm. This Buddha's, the Buddha's enthusiasm at Konadana's awakening, Konadana's insight. It's a very human response. It's a very human response. So you really know Konadana? You got it? You got it? Very poignant, particularly when you think of uh, the Buddha's initial trepidation after his awakening, and he considered the possibility of teaching, and uh, as he thought about teaching the Dhamma, uh, he had doubts. He had doubts. He said, this is going to be hard for people to understand. This is going to be hard for people to understand. It's going to, it's going to be difficult for me to try to teach this stuff. You know, maybe I should just, just enjoy the bliss of awakening. 
but he was able to be heedful and see the doubt. And he realized that, uh, that beings would be able to practice this Dhamma. Uh, he was able to put aside his doubts and he realized that some beings with a little dust in their eyes will, be, will learn this Dhamma. And he proclaimed, the doors to the deathless are open. The doors are deathless, to the deathless are open to those who are willing to make the effort, to those with a little dust in their eyes. So there's a great joy that the, that, that was, there was a rejoicing. There's a great joy that the devas expressed. There was a great rejoicing. The doors to the deathless are open. And the Buddha had a great delight at Konadana's awakening. Experienced delight. Yes, beings will understand. There are some with a little dust in their eyes. So the Buddha set the wheel in motion. Uh, he began this tradition uh, of passing on the Dhamma, of talk on the Dhamma, giving a Dhamma talk. Like I've done each of the nights on this retreat and in the mornings as well. So over the time, through the centuries, uh, these talks have been given on the Dhamma because there are some with just a little dust in their eyes who will learn and make the effort. I well remember uh, the first longer retreat. Uh, for a few years we had, Paul and I were talking about this, Paul's been on every retreat or he was on the early retreats, most of the retreats. Uh, and we were talking about this before this retreat started. Uh, we had a few shorter ones. And then in 2009, we had our first longer retreat. I think it was a seven-day retreat at Garrison. Uh, I think a few of you were there. And at the end of the retreat, I remember very clearly one of, you know, once silence ended, and, you know, we were talking at lunch or whatever, and one of the yogis who was on the retreat said, Wow, those Dharma talks were, maybe this is why I remember, because he said, those Dharma talks were, were really great. He said, you know, you really covered everything. You went through everything. You, you know, and of course, you know, it was <clears throat> my first longer retreat, so I think, I don't remember exactly what I did, but I think Four Noble Truths, the Five Aggregate, you know, I went through all these basic primary teachings. And he said, you covered everything. He goes, I don't know if you're going to do any more of these retreats, but I don't know what you're going to do for an encore. You've covered everything on this retreat. You've, there's nothing left to cover. You've covered it all. Now, the truth is, in fact, that you know, there's certain basic teachings that we continue to pass on again and again and again. You know, we offer these basic teachings over and over again, as students often note. You know, you've been teaching the same thing. For the last 25 years, again and again. You know, and when students say that, they don't say that. When yogis say that, they don't say that critically. You know, uh, you know there is a particular benefit in uh, hearing the basic teachings again and again. You know, our understanding deepens, our understanding of these teachings deepens over time. A big part of the reason why that happens is. You know, it's not because we get intellectually smarter. It's because as we practice over time and we develop concentration, we get closer to the heart. And the teachings more and more go straight to the heart. We understand the teachings where they're meant to be understood in the heart. More and more, 
there's understanding in the heart. But the Dhamma talk is more than simply an opportunity to hear teachings. It's more than simply an opportunity to hear teachings. It's more than an educational experience. It's an opportunity for us to come together and rejoice. It's a joyful occasion, the Dhamma talk. It's an opportunity to connect to our lineage. Beings have been doing this since the time of the Buddha, just what we're doing right now. It's a cause for rejoicing. It's a joyful occasion. The Dhamma talk provides us with an opportunity to get closer to the heart, because the teachings go straight to the heart. So they're an opportunity to open the heart and to know joy and to hear the devas sing. To hear the devas sing. It's a time for rejoicing. Can you hear the devas singing? Can you hear it? There is a cause for rejoicing. To have joy in the Dhamma. There is a way out of suffering. There is a way to happiness. The Dhamma is a way. It's a way. I remember in the, in the 80s, uh, as I was uh, beginning to ponder the, you know, a, a spiritual course, and I think the, it was the first book I read was uh, Alan Watts' uh, The Way of Zen. And I think it was in the first, on the first page where he says, you know, it's not a religion, it's not a psychology, it's a way of liberation. And I was like, ah, that's, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a way, or I'm looking for a way out. Sartre said, we're all looking for a way out of our suffering. We're all looking for a way to true happiness. So there's a great joy that there's this path, and we're on this path. There's a cause for rejoicing, to rejoice in our goodness, in our effort, in our determination. We can rejoice in our, good, in our goodness as it's expressed in the effort and determination that we show on a retreat like this. The Buddha said, this effort is the highest form of merit. It's the greatest expression of our goodness, the effort that we make on a retreat like this in Dharma practice, the effort that we make to train the mind and open the heart. Our goodness is found in our effort, in the wholehearted effort that we make. There's a tendency, you know, and this is kind of a very Western tendency, to uh, look for happiness in the results, right? Or think our goodness is a function of our, the results that we get, right? And that's what we kind of look at. You know, that's the way we think about our meditation. You know, it's about the results, but really our goodness is found in our effort and the action that we take infused by the heart, informed by the heart. Our goodness is found in our determination and we find joy in the effort. Joy comes from the effort. Joy doesn't come from the results. Joy comes from the effort, from the effort. So the Buddha taught for 45 years he realized through his own awakening that beings could awaken. That we have what it takes as human beings. 
We have what it takes. The Buddha wanted to know what the potential was of a human being. What was our potential in the human realm? He had a sense uh, as a prince uh, that he wasn't achieving his potential as a human being. He realized his potential and the potential that we all have in the awakened heart, which is found inside in our innate wisdom, in love. We all have this potential inside. The doors of the deathless are open to all of us, to those who make the effort, to those who make the effort. Our joy, the joy is found in making the effort to, what's, to make this journey to what's inside, to our goodness, to the awakened heart. The Buddha realized that those who made the effort and resolved to awakening would awaken. Some with a little dust in their eyes. Now the resolve, uh, the way I think about this is, uh, uh, you know, we make the resolve because we have a little dust in our eyes, only a little dust in our eyes. We might resolve to make the effort to awaken to know true happiness because we've touched into it, we've touched into the heart, and we know that there is true happiness. There's that right view. Uh, but, you know, we've, we've all experienced that to some extent, true happiness, in some way those who follow the path, who have a little dust in their eyes, have learned, have chosen to turn, have chosen to turn toward you know, what lays behind a run-of-the-mill life, to look toward that, what lies behind having a run-of-the-mill life, have chosen to come out of ignorance, to live a life that transcends uh, a life in which we're looking for happiness in conditioned things. I wanted to read this uh, passage the other night when I gave a talk on conditioned things, that our path is a path to find a happiness that lies beyond conditioned things, what we sometimes might call the spiritual life. Uh, Joseph Campbell has an interesting perspective Joseph Campbell said, what is hell? Hell is the state of a soul that is absolutely committed to its earthly experiences, fixed, as it were, in their time-space aspects, conditioned things, right? Fixed, as it were, in their time-space aspects, without recognizing through these experiences the radiance of the divine dimension. Hell is simply the experience of your limitations to which you are so firmly committed that nothing can break them. That's not having, that's having a lot of dust in your eyes. No one can show you the divine dimension of life that transcends your experience. That's how. No one can show you the divine dimension of life that transcends your experience. 
You know, so it's we choose to rub the dust out of our eyes. We choose to rub the dust out of our eyes. We've resolved to follow a path to the heart. The retreat is part of that journey. It's part of that journey. The Buddha taught the path. The Buddha taught the path. Skills for following the path. Meditation, heedless, heedfulness. Over there are the roots of trees. Over there are abandoned buildings. Over there is Pit Hall. Over there is Anacurtis Center. Practice jhana monks. Don't be heedless. Don't later fall into regret. This is our message to you. The Buddha taught the path and the skills for following the path. It's up to us to follow the path, to put in the effort to make the journey. He taught the path to awakening, the skills that we need to get there. He didn't so much teach about awakening. He didn't so much teach about awakening. He taught us how to get there. It's like if, you know, you, after the retreat, you know, you want to get to Albany, you know, and you, you know, you, you, and you know that somebody knows where Albany is, you know, and they can give you directions there. You want to ask them how to get to Albany, and you want them to tell you, yeah, you take this road, and then you get on this highway, and then you make that turn, and you go over that bridge, and there's Albany. You don't want them to tell you you know, Albany's like this. There's a museum here, you know, and there's a coffee shop on this street, and that's not going to help you get to Albany. That's not going to help you get to Albany. The Buddha taught the path. The Buddha taught the path. The fourth noble truth, our, our duty is to develop the path, to develop concentration. This is the way to the heart. So there is a path, and this is a cause for rejoicing. We're making the effort. It's a cause for rejoicing. It's a difficult path. It's a difficult path. You know, the Buddha said it's much easier to be a run-of-the-mill person. It's much easier to go along with the ways of the world, he said. Most beings will go along with the ways of the world. You decide to follow the path, at first you're going to do it in tears. You're going to do it in tears, but gradually, eventually, you'll come to know a greater happiness. You'll ha come to know an unexcelled happiness. It requires much effort. There's much. There's many ups and downs. You know. I mean, retreat is a microcosm of the path. It's a microcosm of the path. It's a microcosm of life. So we take joy in the effort that we're making. You know, on retreat, we learn to meet difficulty. We learn to deal with the ups and downs. We learn to meet the challenges you know, with equanimity, with acceptance, with compassion. This is what we've talked about. You know, learning to meet the difficulty of our experience on retreat with equanimity. The tools, these are the skills the Buddha teaches us. He teaches you equanimity so that you can meet the difficulties that you're going to encounter as you make that journey to Albany or to awakening. He teaches you acceptance, compassion. You know, these are skills that are essential for following the path and essential for meeting life, for meeting life, for making the most of life. 
You know, we're going to meet difficulties and challenges on, in life, and they're pretty much the same difficulties and challenges that you're going to meet on retreat. Sometimes on retreat they're magnified, but it's the same ups and downs, the same challenges. And we're learning to meet these challenges with equanimity and compassion, with skill, with confidence, with strength. In our retreat, we develop inner strength. We develop inner strength by going through difficulty. And I kind of spoke to this the other night that, you know, people who really struggle on retreat, you know, uh, you know, it's to their benefit that they struggle because they learn to develop inner strength. People that say, ah, retreat's really easy. I just go right through it. You don't learn to develop that kind of inner strength that we develop. Those of us who struggle. You know, those of you who've struggled on this retreat, you know, and have, and, and have made it through, everybody's made it through, have learned to develop inner strength. You've learned to develop skills that you're going to need in practice as you follow the road to awakening, and you're going to need them in life. That's a cause for rejoicing. On the retreat, we develop conviction. And we see, I can meet difficulty. I can meet the challenges. I can meet the ups and downs of practice and of life. We see we can make the journey to the body. You know, it begins with making the journey to the body and then to the heart. Right? It's a hard journey. It's a difficult journey. It's a difficult journey to the body, right? To the breath, to the body. Difficult journey. So many obstacles that we meet along the way. Difficult journey to the heart, but we can do it. We can do it. We have the skills. We have the determination. We have the good intention. So on retreat, in our practice, we develop conviction. We develop conviction in ourselves. We develop conviction in ourselves. We develop conviction in our goodness, in our goodness, you know, our goodness as it's expressed in our effort that we make, showing up. We develop conviction in the heart, in our heart. We develop confidence because we come to know that the heart will see us through. We develop confidence because we know that, come to know that the heart will see us through. We have everything that we need inside. The heart will see us through. So it's very important that we learn to trust in ourselves. In Dharma practice, we learn to trust in ourselves. We learn to trust in the heart. And that the heart will see us through in this practice and in this life. You know, it's like when I went to Berlin, you know, I mean, I knew it was going to be difficult, you know, and it was going to be a huge challenge, but, you know, I knew the heart would see me through. I knew I'd make mistakes, it would be difficult, it would be challenging, but I had faith in the heart. I sure as heck didn't have faith in my, my ability to speak German, you know, or to deal with German bureaucracy or anything else that I needed to, to do, but I had faith in the heart. The heart would see me through. We learn to trust in the heart, to trust in our innate wisdom, to trust in our innate wisdom, 
this has been one of the things we've talked about so much on this retreat, to trust in our innate wisdom, to use our innate wisdom, to rely on our innate, innate wisdom, to rely less on the mind, the thinking mind, if you will, to rely less on the thinking mind and to rely more on the heart and our innate wisdom. You know, it's interesting, you know, I was, I was kind of reflecting on this because uh, I, I was thinking, you know, it's like, it seems like every time I teach a retreat, you know, and I try to teach as organically as possible, and like, what do I need to teach? It seems like every time I teach a retreat, you know, there's this thread in the teaching uh, that has to do with trusting in your innate wisdom. And it's oftentimes not what I think about I'm going to teach about before the retreat. But I get to the retreat and I start teaching and I was like, the only way these guys get, are going to get through this thing is if they trust in their innate wisdom. You know, or this is the way that you get through. The heart is going to see you through. So let's start talking about that. The mind ain't, ain't going to get you through this thing. You know, this thing called life, this thing called meditation, dharma, the journey to the heart. So we learn to trust more in our innate wisdom to rely on our innate wisdom. And, and, and this, you know, this isn't as abstract as it sounds. It's not abstract. It's very pragmatic. It manifests in trusting in awareness, in trusting in awareness when we are experiencing some form of dukkha, when we're holding on to some emotion or mind state, blatant or subtle. You know, it manifests in a very pragmatic way in that simple acronym, ABC. You know? You know? We learn just to bring awareness to dukkha, you know, to what we're holding on to. If it's an emotion, if it's anxiety or worry or sadness, if it's anxiety about the interview, If it's anxiety about going home, going home. If it's sadness, I felt some sadness. The retreat is coming into its last part. So we learn to bring awareness to what we're holding on to, what we're clinging to, and let our innate wisdom understand it. Just bring awareness to it. Just bring awareness to it and trust in awareness. Instead of thinking about the anxiety or trying to analyze it or talk ourselves out of it, just bring awareness to it as it manifests as a felt sensation in the body. You know, over the last number of years, uh, this has really been my main insight practice. It's been my main insight practice. When there's dukkha, or my objective is, and I've been pretty good at following through on that objective, when there's dukkha, when I'm holding on, when there's some kind of mental quality, mind state, anxiety, worry, fear, dissatisfaction, whatever it is, uh, if it's blatant or subtle, and oftentimes it's subtle, you know, it's just very subtle, uh, I just bring awareness to what I'm feeling. Oh, this is anxiety, as Ajahn Sumedho says, it's like that. Oh, this is disappointment. Ah, huh, it's like that. You know, just bring awareness to what I know. Oh, this is what it feels like. That felt sense of, 
of worry or anger, aversion, desire, wanting, not wanting, liking, disliking. A second, a second, maybe two, maybe two seconds, then back to the breath and looking in the heart for compassion. Very, very, very simple practice. Over the last few years, I've simplified my practice so much, profoundly, profoundly, in terms of my insight practice. Simplified it so much, just bring awareness. I've cut out so much of the thinking. I mean, you know, sometimes I analyze and I think about it, and sometimes I might take a deeper look at things in, in a sitting meditation, but most of the time, it's a very simple practice of bringing awareness and trusting in my innate wisdom. Letting my innate wisdom understand my dukkha, that my heart is blocked, that I'm holding on, that what I'm holding on to doesn't have to be held on to, because it's my innate wisdom that can understand that. The mind can't quite understand that, and certainly not understand that in the way that it needs to understand it, that we need to understand it in order to be able to let go of it. So I've cut out so much of the thinking. The thinking, you know, we need some thinking, right? Uh, but ultimately, the thinking gets in the way of discernment. It obstructs awareness. It obstructs the understanding in the heart. So I've made an effort to keep it very, very, very simple. Very simple. And of course, an important part of that process, essential part of it, is to trust in my innate awareness, to trust in my innate wisdom. And the results have been profound of doing that. It's been profound what I've seen. You know, my ability to accomplish the duties of the Four Noble Truths has you know, gone on to another level. You know, because I'm allowing the heart to do what the mind couldn't do. And so my ability to comprehend suffering, to comprehend clinging, to comprehend the objects of clinging, to understand that they're not self, to understand my capacity to let go, my ability to let go, my ability to know what it's like when there is letting go, my ability to know cessation, directly experience cessation, to know freedom, peace, stilling, what it's like when we put down the burden. You know, that's developed profoundly by following this very simple practice. But really what I've done is, the practice is, is a form, really what I've learned to do more is to trust my innate wisdom. Right? You know, the ABC is just a form we follow, but what we're learning to do is to trust our innate wisdom. I mean, this is, our, this is our power. You know, our power is found in our innate wisdom. Our power is found in the heart. So we have to develop trust in it. You know, we tend to lack trust. We try to figure things out. We go to our thinking. That's our default, right? To use the thinking mind. That's our default. It's understandable because, you know, it's our default because it's all we've ever learned to use. You know, it's understandable that we don't trust our innate wisdom because we haven't used it. You only learn to trust in it by trying it. We develop trust by trying it, giving our innate wisdom an opportunity 
to understand what the mind we gradually begin to see can't understand. A, B, C. Bring awareness to your dukkha, your clinging, in a very simple way. Allow the heart to understand. You know, what do the Thai Ajans always say? Why don't you give it a try? You know? Why don't you give it a try? What have you got to lose? How has what you've been doing so far been working? Why don't you try this? Why don't you try this? So it's an invitation to trying. You know, what we're trying to develop in bringing awareness to the experience is for that awareness to be as pure as possible, right? Remember what we talked about when there's pure awareness, you know, you know, equanimity, pure bright awareness, the heart conver awareness converges at the heart. So, you know, that means in order for there to be, you know, is the, our awareness of the anxiety or the worry or the sadness to be pure, it means we can't be thinking about it. You know, that purity, those, that moment of purity lasts for a second, maybe. You know, in that second, you know, if the awareness is pure, it'll converge at the heart, and there's an opportunity for wisdom, for wisdom. So try it, practice. It's a process of doing it for days, weeks, months, years. I mean, you have this innate wisdom. You have this innate wisdom. This is an invitation and an encouragement to try it. And this is why the devas were rejoicing, because the Buddha came to understand this, what we had inside of ourselves, and that we could find freedom from our suffering and put down our burdens. So you have an innate wisdom. You have to come see, to see this. And the only way you see it is by practicing. You have to learn to develop trust in it and put it to good use. If you do, you'll experience insight and understanding and freedom in a way that you haven't before. There's no question in my mind. I have no question, no question, that you will. You have what you need in order to be free, to know true happiness. You have it. What we don't have is confidence in that. What we don't have is confidence in that. You know, when I did teacher training, you know, Jack Cornfield said, the most important thing that you can do as a teacher is try to give your students confidence. You know, they've got everything they need. They just have to have confidence in their goodness and in their innate wisdom. You know, many of us know the story of the Buddha and Ananda. You know, Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, and for the last part of the Buddha's life was his main attendant. And Ananda kind of lacked self-confidence, uh, and uh, you know, and that lack of self-confidence was sort of exacerbated by the fact that all the other monks that were in the Buddha's retinue were, you know, becoming arhats, except for Ananda. You know, you probably have that feeling: all these guys are arhats except me, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, and, Ananda, and the Buddha would say, look, Ananda, you've done so much good work, you've developed so much parami, you're going to make it. You know, the problem with you, Ananda, is you've relied too much on me. You've relied too much on me. You need to learn to be a lamp unto yourself. You need to learn to be a lamp unto yourself. You know? Ananda lacked self-confidence and self-reliance. He was too reliant on the Buddha. 
So this quality of self-reliance is so important. So important. Emerson, of course, wrote on self-reliance. Emerson said, there is a time in every man's education when he arrives at the conviction that envy is ignorance, that imitation is suicide, and that he must take himself for better or worse as his portion, that though the wide universe is full of good, no kernel of nourishing corn can come to him but through his toil bestowed on the plot of ground which is given him to till. The power which resides on him is new in nature, and none but he knows what that is and is which he can do, nor does he know until he has tried. Be a lamp unto yourself. Be a lamp unto yourself. And of course, the, the lovely postscript to the story is that when the Buddha died, Ananda was forced to rely on himself and became one of the arhats. You don't have to wait until I die, though. <laughs> Trust in your heart, in your innate wisdom, in the knowing quality. Sometimes the Thai Ajans call it the Ajahn Mahabha, the knowing quality. It's inside us. It's inside us, the ability to understand suffering and the end of suffering, the ability to understand what leads to true happiness. Trust in the heart. Trust in compassion, metta. Trust in love. Trust in love. Trust in your wish to be happy. Trust in your wish to be happy. You've got to know your wish to be happy and trust in it. Your metta is what guides you. Metta is what guides you. It's the governing principle for Dharma students. It's the governing principle. We do what we do out of metta for ourselves and all beings, out of our wish to be happy. That's what guides us. That's what keeps us on the breath, right? As I've been saying, it's what guides us. It's what enables us to put aside the hindrances and to develop an easeful breath and an abiding in the body. Metta is our North Star. When we live in tune with the heart, you know, with metta, we do what we do out of love for ourselves. We do what I do, we do out of love for ourselves. The actions that we take, we take out of love for ourselves and other beings. You know, when we live in tune with the heart, with love, we move towards happiness of heart. This is how we find happiness of heart, by taking action it's in support of our wish to be happy. So as we go forward, as we live our days, we leave this retreat, we go back to our rooms, we listen to the Dhamma talk, we trust in the heart, in metta, in love, in the wish to be happy. We trust in that to guide us. We allow that to guide us. It requires trust, right? Just like it requires trust in our innate wisdom, we have to trust in metta, trust in love, trust in love to determine our actions, to make our decisions. Every day we have actions to take, decisions to make. It's all about the actions we take, the decisions we make, the big decisions, the day-to-day, moment-to-moment decisions. Are we going to act out of metta? Are we going to let metta decide our course of action? Or are we going to let other qualities 
decide our course of action? Are we going to continue just to replay our stories? Or resolve to let go of our stories, to abandon the food we've subsisted on, aversion, desire, all its myriad forms, the food that fuels the stories, gives rise to self-identities. Are we going to resolve to abandon what we've been holding on to? And are we going to resolve to trust in love, to trust in love to determine our actions? This is the way to happiness. This is the way to happiness, to the happiness of heart, to true happiness, to resolve to trust in love to determine our actions. So we learn to abandon our stories, our old ways of living. We don't let our stories guide us. You know, this requires heedfulness. This is the heedfulness part of it, right? You know, we're heedful. Is what I'm doing an act informed by love and compassion? Is this in support of the heart and my wish to be happy? Is this conducing, this action, this decision that I'm making and taking, is this conducing to happiness of heart? Or am I just playing out the old story? one of the stories. We learn to abandon our stories. Guided by the heart, we move toward a new life. And you've got everything that you need in order to do this. You know, concentration is good enough. You know, we develop a concentration that's good enough so that we can be heedful. So that we can have enough purity of awareness, equanimity, so that we can rely on what's inside and in the heart, our innate wisdom and love to guide us in terms of the actions we take, the decisions we make. So we learn to live in tune, to live in tune with the heart. We trust in love. We trust in love, in the wish to be happy, to determine our actions. The heart will see you through. So we're moving to a new life. You know, that's the spiritual journey. It's moving to a new life. But maybe it's not quite so new, right? Maybe it's not quite so new. Maybe, as one of the yogis said today, we're just coming back to ourselves. We're coming back to ourselves. We're coming back to our goodness. We're coming back to the heart. After all, the heart's been there all along. The heart's been there all along. Wisdom, love has always been there, has always been there. Maybe we're just coming back to what's always been there, that truth. we are. Nietzsche said, this is my main message to you. Be who you are. Be who you are. And we all love the poem of T.S. Eliot, the last part of the uh, four quartets, the little getting. We shall not cease from exploration. Oh, right? This is the retreat. We shall not cease from exploration. 
And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, remember gate. Unknown, but remembered. We kind of know the way to the heart, right? It's sort of, you know, this seems familiar as we start to get more into the heart. So we start to get in rhythm. Through the unknown, remember gate. When the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall, and the children in the apple tree. So he studied the Buddha's teachings. Think of the Buddha under the rose apple tree. And the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for. Always been there. Always been there. But heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick, now, here, now. Always, always, always. It's always there. It's always there. I always, and you know, I know it doesn't always resonate for everybody, but you know, in my metta meditation, the reflection on the visualization on myself as a child in a moment of happiness has always spoken to me because uh, it reminds me of uh, the true happiness that I have experienced in my life. We've all experienced true happiness. We've all experienced true happiness. Uh, really helps me that visualization touch into the happiness of the child, you know, to that rhythm, you know, the rhythm of that child. think of uh, you know, playing with my friends on the street when I was nine years old on a summer day. You know, that rhythm is always there, quick, now, here, now, always. It's always there, it's always been there. But we've lost it, the unknown but remembered gate. We've lost it. You know, the way we lose it is the mind, the clinging, dukkha blocks us off from that knowing. We're out of tune. Now we're coming back into rhythm. We're finding it. We're finding the heart. We're finding love. We're finding the way to live that's going to lead to true happiness. Thomas Merton talks about this rhythm uh, as the cosmic dance or the general dance. He talks about it as a dance and the quality of uh, the heart. Of course, he's coming from a Christian tradition, being more akin to play. He says, what is serious to men is often very trivial to the sight of God. What in God might appear to us as play is perhaps what he himself takes most seriously. Merton said, for the, for the world and time are the dance of the Lord in emptiness. The dance of the Lord, the rhythm that we've been talking about. The silence of the spheres is the music of a wedding feast. The more we persist in misunderstanding the phenomena of life, the more we analyze them, thinking mind, the more we analyze them out into strange finalities and complex purposes of our own, the more we involve ourselves in sadness, absurdity, and despair. But it does not matter much because no despair of ours can alter the reality of things or stain the joy of the cosmic dance, which is always there. 
Indeed, we are in the midst of it, and it is in the midst of us, for it beats in our very blood, whether we want it or not. Yet the fact remains that we are invited to forget our awful solemnity, cast, uh, to forget ourselves, yet the fact remains that we are invited to forget ourselves on purpose, cast our awful solemnity to the winds, and join in the general dance. So when I think of that rhythm that we've been talking about, uh, you know, it has that quality of play, of the child at play. You know, that rhythm, I, I, I sense that when I visualize that child at nine years old on the street, you know, and in the, as the evening begins to descend on a, summer, on a summer day and my mother's calling me, come on in for dinner and I don't want to go in, I don't want the day ever to end. I just want it to go on forever. So we're finding ourselves, our truth, the Dhamma inside, and it's a cause for rejoicing. The Devas are singing because we're coming back to ourselves, to our rhythm, our Dhamma inside. So we pay attention. We pay attention what it mean, to what it means to be in rhythm, to be in tune to the heart. You know, it's like my teacher Eugene Cash would say, we don't know, you know, when we're going to, you know, align ourselves with the dance, uh, when we're going to connect to the rhythm, when we're going to find ourselves in tune. Could be in the meditation, it could be in the walking, it could be when we're going for a walk. So we pay attention. We pay attention. You know, I talked about this this morning. You know, maybe it's in the walking meditation. We find ourselves in tune, or we're out walking, and suddenly there's a lightness in our step. A lightness in our step. You know, for a moment, we've put down the burden. There's a lightness in our step. It's the path of putting down our burdens. For a moment, suddenly, suddenly, there's a lightness in our step. Something forgotten, but remembered. It's familiar, right? Oh, I remember this. I remember what this feels like. Something found. You found your rhythm. You found your rhythm. Maybe it's just for a few steps. Maybe it's just for a few steps. As I said this morning, maybe it's just one step. But that's how we begin. That's how we begin. Every great journey begins with a single step. We take one step and we move forward from there. So let's just close our eyes for a minute. 